Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So we are continuing here um, in the book of Mark. Um, as Jerry just read there, we are in chapter 1 of Mark, verses 21 through 34. So I want to kind of remind you of a few things. Um, see how well you guys have been paying attention the last two weeks. So Mark, the gospel writer, wrote this, but who is he writing for? Peter, right? Right? We believe that Peter really is dictating the events, the historical events, to, to John Mark, Mark, and he is writing it down. We believe he was much younger. We don't believe he was really an eyewitness to all of these things. Um, he came around, he may have met Jesus early on when he was young, uh, living with his mother, but we don't really believe that he was a disciple in the sense of following and going around where every place Jesus went. And he's really writing for, Mar, or for Peter, and Peter and him have become good. In fact, Peter kind of acknowledges him as his spiritual son, that Mark is his spiritual son. So what else do we know? We know that this is the shortest gospel of the four. Who was the audience in mind when Peter and Mark penned this? Gentiles, that's right. Gentiles, not Jews. It was the Roman church, the Roman area there, uh, that whole surrounding area, that the church there, and it was meant for the Gentiles. Gentiles, another way of saying anybody that's not Jewish fits into the Gentile category. Romans, Greeks, whatever, it doesn't matter. Gentiles. And the way that we kind of see is because we want to know that's because how the book was written. It was written not like Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written with lots of Jewish information, lineage, and, and all sorts of that kind of thing. That's not included in the traditions and all the things. Mark didn't write it that way. Mark and Peter didn't put that down because they knew their audience. They knew that didn't mean anything. And so it was also the shortest of the Gospels. So what else do we know about it? it was, it's the most translated book of all time. Not just in the Bible. It's the most translated book of all time. And that was because it's been used more than any other gospel in mission work. Because everybody that missionaries go to are not Jewish, usually, right? 99% of the world is not Jewish. And so they're taking the gospel to a non-Jewish world. And so the gospel of Mark fits that perfectly for that. It's amazing what God has designed 2,000 years ago and how he instructed the gospel writers, to write certain things that would become very influential and, and very, have great purpose and reason later in the world, right? Such, such a beautiful thing how God constructs all of that. So here we have, um, I want to remind you again that Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist a year earlier than this, right? And he had met a few people there. He met John the Baptist, obviously, because John baptized him. He met Andrew and got introduced to Peter and James and John, and probably somewhere in there, I think he met Philip and Nathaniel. But so there's a few guys that he got to know. And then they went back to fishing. They went back to, because he got baptized in the Jordan, which is just east of, of Jerusalem, really. And they went back to fishing up in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is where most of Jesus' ministry ultimately takes place. And you're going to see that kind of start out here in the text today. And so a year passes. Jesus has been doing some miracles. He's been to Jerusalem for the Passover. He may have had, maybe, maybe Peter and John and some of those guys were with him in Jerusalem for the Passover, but, but they weren't following everywhere he went. They were fishing. And we saw that last week because Jesus then goes to Galilee. After a year passes, he's been 
preaching and teaching in the land, what we'd say in Judea, which is all around Jerusalem, right? The area of Judea. And he goes up and he begins, he goes to Galilee and he's along the seashore. And what does he do? He sees, I think he's going to see them, but he goes and he sees Andrew and and Peter and James and John, and he calls them and he says, come and follow me. Now they knew him. So we established that last week. They knew him. They'd been following him as a rabbi, right? They, they knew his teaching. They, they knew he was probably somebody exceptional, right? But they hadn't left everything that they had to go follow this guy yet. And he says, come and follow me. And at that point, it says they dropped their nets and they came and followed. Now I want you to understand that that's a real event. That's not something that somebody said, oh yeah, they decided to follow him one, you know, eventually. No, they literally dropped their stuff and they left their boats. And the reason we know that is because when James and John leave, it says they left their dad Zebedee in the boat with the other servants, right? So there's great detail here. This isn't just some kind of subjective thing that's taking place. No, this is an historical thing. This is, this is why it was worth documenting because they left, Right? And so now they're following Jesus, and they're, they're in Galilee, which is, like I said, where most of Jesus' ministry takes place, not in Jerusalem, but around Galilee. And so what you're going to see here in the text is, is that, and just so you know, the Sea of Galilee is in northern Israel, way up in northern Israel. If you've been seeing maps on the news lately, uh, some people would say it's the Golan Heights is off to the right, if you're looking at the map, and Syria's right there, and Lebanon is right there, and the Sea of Galilee is not too far down from some of the war that is taking place in the northern Hezbollah. And this is where everything is taking place. Specifically, he's in a town called Capernaum, which is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus lives there. We don't know when he moves there. We don't know what, if he lived with Peter. It looks like maybe he lived with Peter and Andrew, right? And he stayed in their house. And actually, historically, in archaeology, I can't pronounce the word, you know, that archaeological thing, whatever you have pronounced that. My tongue is not working. Um, there's evidence that they think they found Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house. And it's, it's, the foundation is there, and, and they think it was used for a gathering place. There's inscriptions on the wall for the early church to gather. Now, nobody knows for sure, but, but they think that it may have been the actual house that they gathered in. Now, he was born in Nazareth, right? So why did he end up in Capernaum? Why did he go there? Well, we can speculate a little bit, and we will here in just a few minutes, but we'll, we'll, let's, let's dive in. So, he's asking them to come and follow him and leave everything. You know, that's what Jesus does. I don't know if you've, if you've been a Christian, if you really understand the gospel and the good news, that Jesus really comes and says, come and die and leave everything else behind and come and follow me. That doesn't mean literally leave it. Maybe. Sometimes it does. Uh, but sometimes it just means, like, I am first. I'm first above all things. Well, that's a tough sell, isn't it? I mean, why would I go follow someone? Why would these guys who are fishermen and, and have a living and, and they're doing this business, they were probably pretty, pretty well off as far as being fishermen. They, they worked hard and they probably did well. Why would they leave and follow this guy? Now, obviously, they thought he was a rabbi that was pretty influential. Maybe they thought he was the Messiah. We see that a year earlier that John the Baptist kind of says that, that there's the Lamb of God, right? Go and follow him. Okay, but I need to see something. I need to know that I can trust this guy. There's a reason. How do I know that he's the Messiah? How do I know that he's God in the flesh? I mean, okay, he, he got baptized. I saw him get baptized, and yeah, John said a few things, but how do I really know? 
right? I've heard some things that he's done, kind of crazy. He flipped some tables over in Jerusalem, and, and you know, maybe he some rumor that he turned water into wine in some wedding, you know, a year ago. But gosh, you're asking me to give my life away. Well, what would you want to see? So last week, we talked about how Jesus comes and he proclaims the gospel, right? And the gospel is the good news. And then that proclamation is really saying what? You must repent, turn away from your sin, and believe in me. And that believe in me means trust me. Like, give me your life. I, I, like, yield it to me. I, I, want, I want control. I want to be control of your life. I want to be the main thing, the main thing that you worship in your life. Well, why do I want, how can I let that go? Well, I, don't, I don't know that I can trust you to let that go. So what does, what's the next thing that God should do or that Jesus could do to help these guys do that? He needs to show them he has full authority over all things. And he has power over all things. Because wouldn't that convince you to follow the guy? Like, okay, you're, you're saying a lot of good things, but how do I know? Show me the stuff, right? Show me who you say you are. And so what you're going to see here in these next 12, 13 verses is, is Jesus is going to reveal, and this is the big idea for you this morning, right? Jesus is going to reveal his power and authority to everyone. It's, it's really the start of his, I would say, his, his ministry. Even though he's been doing some things for the last year, most historians believe that this is really the beginning of this incredible two-year you know, ministry that's going to lead up and, and have an um, end with, obviously, his death in Jerusalem on, on a hill called Golgotha on a cross, right? But this is kind of the, really the start of it here. And so Jesus reveals his power and authority because as as Peter is starting this book, and you know, obviously Mark is writing it, it's, it's building. So we see that God affirmed him by the baptism and all the things. That God has affirmed that this is my son. And then the proclamation of the gospel comes, and Jesus says, you need to repent and believe and trust in me. And so how do I do that? How do I get these people to do that? Well, the first thing I got to do is I got to let them see that I am God. I am. I have ultimate power and ultimate authority. That's where we pick it up, and that's where he starts in verse 21. Let's pick it up. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. All right. So once again, I want to remind you that when you're studying Scripture, even if you're sitting under the teaching of, of a pastor and somebody's preaching, um, there's things that you want to underline and things you want to make note of in the text, right? Because if you really want to understand the text, you've got to get familiar with who's in it, where is it at, who's it being spoken to. All of those things help it become much more clear. And so when someone teaches or preaches, and I will just tell you that all preaching should involve teaching, right? So preaching is really nothing more than taking a text and teaching it and, and being able to um, exalt it and try and inspire and try and encourage it in, in a very um, passionate sort of way. Teaching should never, uh, can be alone. It doesn't need to be preached. Teaching, some guys just teach. They just are great teachers. They really aren't preachers. You should never sit under someone that's a great preacher that's not teaching. And there are people like that out there. There are great communicators in the world that do not preach or that do not teach. They preach, they preach something, they preach a gospel, they preach something, they preach self-help, but they're not teaching the scripture. The elders and I work very hard to try and make sure that when we teach, um, 
And when we preach, all of our preaching is rooted in the text, right? And so that's why we pick books and we call it expository teaching. We're going through verse by verse by verse. We're making sure that we're not skipping things. We believe all God's word is important and helpful, right? And so we want to make sure of that. And so here he goes to Capernaum. And so the first thing I'd encourage you to kind of see is, where's he at? Okay, he's in Capernaum. We talked about that. The northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And he immediately, now, why is Capernaum important? Well, one, it's, it's on a road. It's right next to the sea. So it was, it was very much a, um, uh, a commerce area because you had fishing and all of the, you know, the, the, the fishing businesses that were there and all of that. Obviously, that's where James and John were and, and Peter and Simon and all, everybody was there, Right. Or I should say Andrew and Simon, uh, which is Simon Peter. And the road from Damascus, which we'd say up is in Syria right now, comes down at that time and right through Capernaum and all the way down to, to Jerusalem. And so it was a major uh, thoroughfare for business and commerce. And so Jesus moves from Nazareth, moves here. We don't know exactly why. Obviously, it was more of a hot spot than Nazareth, right? You, we've seen in Scripture, Nazareth is like nothing good comes of Nazareth, one of the writers says, right? And Nazareth is kind of farther south and off to the west, and, and it's kind of disconnected. There's no major road that goes through there, and so he's coming. And maybe it was because that's where the disciples that he was calling were going to be part of. But this is where Jesus kind of decides his base of ministry is going to be conducted out of. It says, he went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, so now we know what the day is, right? It's Saturday. It's on the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. So a synagogue, what, what is a synagogue? So just to kind of build you some historical history here, we don't know exactly when synagogues became a thing, to be honest with you. Um, after the, the, the Babylonian conquest and captivity of Israel back in uh, 586 B.C., 600 years before Jesus, uh, Israel was conquered a second time, put into captivity in, in Babylon. The temple was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed. And... What most historians believe is that the Jews, when they started to gather again, said, okay, the temple's been destroyed. Um, we've been under, put under captivity twice. We keep moving away from God. We need to fix this. So we need to start establishing places where we can gather regularly to read the Torah, stay connected to God's word. And so they established synagogue. The word synagogue really means a gathering place. It's a, it's a community, a place to gather. And so somewhere, we don't see it in the Old Testament really, but we clearly see here in the, the New Testament, it's present, that they go to synagogues. Now, synagogue, actually the Jews kind of to try and control this, they made a rule and kind of a, a, almost a law in their community that any village or town that had 10 men that were Jewish, you had to have a synagogue. And when I say men, anybody 13 and up. So young men, you're 13, you have responsibility, right? You have a lot of responsibility. They considered you, actually, that was the start of manhood at 13 years old, right? And you had great responsibility. And so if there was 10 men, 10 Jewish men, 13 and up, there would be a synagogue. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that if you think about this, synagogues were then placed all of these places, every place the Jews went, and when the were called the diaspora, when the captivity happened, the Jews were kind of scattered all sorts of places through modern Turkey. And now all of a sudden you had synagogues in all these places. So when Jesus comes and Paul comes and the gospel starts to be propagated and proclaimed throughout the world, they had places to go and share. It's, it's a beautiful picture here. The synagogue 
anybody could speak, basically. And so this is the, the wonderful thing about how this worked. The, the, whoever ran the synagogue didn't do the speaking. They invited other rabbis, other people in the laity to speak and to come and share. And so here, when Jesus walks into the synagogue, he's allowed to take the pulpit, so to speak. He's allowed to read. When Paul, in the missionary journeys, he goes in. He, he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's allowed to speak. Every place they go, they had the podium to be able to preach and teach. Think about how God orchestrated that moment in history and that, that way that all these synagogues were all over the country, all over the known world at that time in, in modern-day Turkey, and every place they went and every town they went to, if there was enough Jews there, they got a chance to go in and actually teach and preach from the Old Testament, the Septuagint, about that who Jesus was and now that he has come. All right? So that's the place we kind of find ourselves here in the synagogue. So he's there, and he's teaching. Now, this word um, teaching, he's, this word teaching is used like 35 times throughout Mark's gospel, right? And every time, except for one, it's referring to Jesus. So clearly, Jesus has this, this, this understanding that he is a teacher. It's one of the, the characteristics of him that, that stands out in the gospel of Mark. He is a teacher, right? And, and he taught as one who had authority, it says, right? It says they were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed, right? They were amazed. Here's, here's a guy teaching, and they were just amazed at it. And it says here they had authority, right? Has he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes? The scribes would, would basically teach, but they didn't have the knowledge of things like Jesus did, right? We're going to see that here in a second. And so this idea of um, exosia, which is this word for authority. It's, it's nine times here in the Gospel of Mark. Six of them refer exactly to Jesus. He is the authority. Three other times, it's about his apostles, but in every time, it's the authority that he gives the apostles. So it's truly his authority in all nine times. It's clearly that what, what Peter and Mark are trying to say is that Jesus is the authority. He is the teacher, and he teaches with authority, Right? And so, if the big idea today is that Jesus reveals his power and authority, we're going to see how he does that. The first thing we see here is he reveals it in how he taught, right? He reveals it in how he taught. They were amazed at his teaching. Absolutely, the word there is astonished. It was something like they'd never heard before. Well, what... And, and notice that it doesn't say what he taught. Mark doesn't even say what he taught because Mark's emphasis and Peter's emphasis here is not on what Jesus taught, is that this is who he is. He is the authority. He has all power and he is the authority. They were highlighting who Jesus is and that's what they wanted to make sure. There's other gospels and other places where it's gonna talk about his teachings and all that. But Mark is very condensed and says, no, this is the Messiah. This is who he is and this is what he taught. Is not as important. Not necessarily not as important, but they wanted to make sure they accentuated who Jesus was. Now, it says that they were amazed. How do, how do we know um, how, how they responded to all of that? How they, that he taught with authority? Think about this for a second. If I were to um, tell you about a, a trip to the moon... I'd never been there, but I've read a lot of books, and I, I understand science. I understand uh, how rockets get off the earth and the gravity and the force and, 
and the G's, and, and I understand somewhat about weightlessness, and, and so I can explain to you what it must feel like to be in a rocket, you know, leaving the earth, and, and all that liquid fuel, and then how long it takes to get there, and, you know, the cramped space, and all the, the squeezed peanut butter that you have to eat, and have to use the bathroom, and all that kind of stuff has to happen, and I can tell you all that kind of stuff. And I may even tell you and describe to you what it feels like to land on the moon and, and have somebody get out and walk in kind of a, a light, you know, a light gravity type situation. But I've not been there. And, and I may even be able to wow you some, with some things I've said and things I've studied. But all of a sudden, if an astronaut walks up here and says, look, give me the podium. I've been there. I want to tell you what it's like. I, I, I can speak with authority on this. That would put me to shame, what he could share. Now, just lay that simple little example over Jesus. There are scribes that, that are recanting things that took place in the Old Testament and the Red Sea and, and creation, and, and most of them are quoting other scribes, and, and, and not that they're not doing, trying to do good things, they're just doing their best that they can. And all of a sudden, Jesus steps up to the podium, to the Torah, and not only is he going to talk and read Scripture, he is the Word of God. He has been there. He is God. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows it all. And he begins to teach and expound upon things that, that they are just totally overwhelmed by. That's kind of the setting, what I want you to see here. I want you to really understand that this truly did was amazing to them, right? It was amazing to them. Now, so... He reveals himself and how he starts. So let's, let's go ahead and move on here to verse 23 and 24. It says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So interestingly, he's teaching with authority. And here a man is in the synagogue who is demon-possessed. Now, once again, we don't know why he's there. Does he come every Saturday? Is he always there? We don't know. I will tell you that one commentary talks about, commentary talks about it and says, you know, if he was there frequently, it's kind of a sad state of affair that, that Jesus, or that, that this man could be present in the community of God and, and not be brought under control or not, be, not have the demon cast out. There's just this, like, how can these two things coexist together, right? In fact, when he says this in this text, is what have you to do with us? That term really means that there's nothing in common that you have with us, right? Nothing. And, and so this one commentator kind of makes the comment. He says, I wonder how many churches today have people living in sin, and there's no admonishment of it. There's, that, that, that we coexist, and we shouldn't coexist that way. In other words, my point is, we all have sin. I get that. But the church that allows sin to go unchecked is kind of like what he's saying here. The, the rabbis in this synagogue were kind of letting these things go unchecked. There was, a, there was this, almost a, a, a culture there of maybe the, the synagogue was dead spiritually. And, and are there dead churches? Are there churches that are not speaking out against sin? Are there churches that are allowing sin to run rampant in their congregation and not confronting it? 
And I will tell you that the Bible clearly tells us that we are, as the body of Christ, we're to lovingly bring uh, admonishment on the situations and bring correction in the situations. Does that make it easy? No, it does not make it easy. Is that what the congregation usually wants? No, not usually. <laughs> no, because we don't want people messing with our life. We, we want people to stay out of our life. We want to come. We want to be able to sing. We want to be able to tell that Jesus loves me. He died for me. I have a good cup of coffee, and then I can go home. Nobody needs to know about what's going on in my life. I don't want anybody telling me what I need to do, right? And we're going to see some challenge to that here in a little bit. And so he's in the synagogue, this man with an unclean spirit. We, we think he's possessed, right? And he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, notice there real quick. The spirit knows Jesus. He knows him. He says, you're from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Notice something else in that statement right there. He knows that Jesus has ultimate authority. He is, he's not saying, hey, I'm going I'm to wage war with you now. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let go of this guy. The Spirit immediately says, have you come to destroy us? Like, we know who you are. We acknowledge you. In fact, the next statement, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it interesting that the Spirit, the evil Spirit, is proclaiming Christ? <laughs> Right? He is saying, we know you're the son of God. We know. Can you imagine what was happening in the synagogue there? And, and what are these people hearing? And what are they thinking about here? They are absolutely like this demon is, is saying that this is the son of God. Right? The holy one. He has power and authority. What's kind of sad, to be honest with you, is that here we see that the demons are acknowledging who he is, but yet what we're going to see throughout all of Mark is that many of the Jews won't acknowledge him. The demons will acknowledge him, but they won't. I would say we look at our world today and it says we see that even the demons, the spiritual world, acknowledges Christ as God, and yet the human heart will refuse to acknowledge him. Anything you need to think about that? Think about your own heart, Right? Here the spiritual world is clearly acknowledging that Christ is the Son of God. You know, if we look down a little further in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus is quoted in saying this, and I'll explain this once I read it. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is teaching them, says, look, unless you bind the strong man, you, you, you can't plunder his house. You, you have to do something first. There's a priority of things. What is Jesus' priority here in, as he starts his ministry, which I think is really now he's starting the full-fledged ministry? The first thing he does is he binds spiritual things, demons. Because before anything else, he wants to show people that he has power over that. He has power over the most heinous, spiritual world, supernatural world. He has authority. He clearly says that. So the first thing he does, he binds it. In fact, we see he says he silences. He doesn't even want it to speak, the demon to speak. We see in Mark a little further in chapter 5, verse 7, another example. In fact, I think there's four times that, that Mark makes an account of demon possession and every time how Jesus handles it and casts the demon out. In Mark chapter 5, verse 7, it says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Again, 
the demon acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. We go into Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Once again, the demons are clearly acknowledging him as the Son of God. And so what do we see? Not only does Jesus reveal his power and authority by how he taught, but he also does it through the words of, a, of demons. He reveals through the words of demons his power and authority. Even they are proclaiming his deity, his divine deity. But does that mean demons are saved? No. Once again, believing does not equate to trusting in or to surrender or to salvation. James, in the book of James, puts it this way in chapter 2. He's really referring, and it's kind of tied in here with faith without works is dead, right? And so he puts these two things together. If you have faith, you will have good works. And then in the midst of this, in 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one. So he's saying there's something else that is tied together. You do well. But then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. So he's saying, they believe and, and they're afraid, just like you can have works, but that doesn't make you a believer. You have to have faith. Has to, you have to have belief. And so the demons, even though they're acknowledging him as God, even though they're, they're realizing he has power to defeat them and destroy them, they are not going to be saved because they're not yielding to him. They're not believing and trusting in Christ. We see that many places in the New Testament. And so this morning, you may say, well, I, I believe I would just ask you, what does that mean? Does, does that mean you acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is? Okay, good. Have you surrendered your life? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you willing to let go of your life and let him have it? No. Well, then you believe, but you do not trust in Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 25 of Mark. But Jesus rebuked him, meaning the spirit, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So here we see that he has this power to cast the demon out. Now once again, go back into the picture of where you're at. You're in the synagogue. You've just heard this man speak with authority like you've never heard. He's reading now the Torah. He's communicating things. It's amazing. Here's a demon-possessed man. And not only does Jesus speak with authority, he walks over and he commands the spirit to be silenced and to be cast out. He's just taken his authority and shown the power that he has with his authority in that moment. And that's what he was trying to do to set off his ministry. He was clearly establishing who he was and that he was the ultimate authority, and he had ultimate power over all things. And he starts by binding the strongest thing, which is the spirit of darkness, demons, whatever you want to say, and he rebukes it and tells it to leave the man, and it says that he does. You know, as I think about this, it says he was convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice. There's this struggle that we see many times in this type of possession that there's this thing going on in the human body that this demon is not wanting to leave, right? And it, it's trying to hold on, but it can't because it can't, it can't defeat Jesus. And so ultimately it does. And sometimes it says, hey, don't do this to us. Cast us here, cast us there. And we see that in different places. 
I want to kind of bring that down to us a little bit. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert on demon possession and, and those type of things. I've not studied that kind of thing in our world. But I do know that in our flesh, whether we have a demon in it or not, in our flesh, we want to hold on to all sorts of things. And when Jesus comes along and says, I want you to let go of that, I want you to turn your life over to me, we don't want to let go. And there's a fight that takes place in our flesh, right? Paul talks about it a lot. And so when it says that he says, be silent and come out of him, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, right? I think this is true for us. Many times in our walk with Christ, whether, whether we've just beginning to our started our process, we've just become born again, or we're, the, the gospel's made known to us and we're having to decide, are we going to trust in Christ? Are we going to do that? Or whether we're believers that, that are being sanctified through our walk and, and God is coming along and saying, no, now you need to take this step. I need you to let go of that, Raleigh. No, I don't want to let go of that. No, I'm not getting rid of that. And all of a sudden, there's a fight. There's a, there's a challenge between I don't want to let go of this and God saying, no, I, need, I don't want you to go. Now, God could just take it, but he gives us this opportunity to either decide to let go or not to let go. And there's convulsing going on, right? When, when God comes and says, look, I, I want to take, I want, I want your wealth to be used for this purpose. I want your influence to be used for me over here. I, I, want, to, I want to change how you're handling sexuality. I want to pull that out, and I want you to glorify me with it. We say, no, this is mine. No, I'm not doing that. I, I don't want to let go of that. And, and there becomes this, this battle, this internal struggle in our flesh. And I think this is taking place here in a very spiritual way, but obviously it's, it's, a, it's a picture of how we interact with the Spirit in our own life. But what I think the point here is, is that he's revealing himself again, not only in how he taught and, and through the words of demons, but he reveals his power to cast out demons. In other words, now he's saying, I want to show you that I have the power to do all of this. I can do it. I, there's nothing that I can't do. And, and he has power over all supernatural things. Verse 27, 28, it says, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits that they obey him. And at once, his fame spread elsewhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. There's this picture of they're just overwhelmed by what Jesus has just done. I mean, can you imagine being there that day? I mean, if Jesus came here and, and preached and, and cast a demon out of someone, the impact that that would have on us. And yet, the, the incredible thing is, is not only we get to be there because Jesus in his word records it, we get to see all, many of them. There's a lot of things that happen in Jesus' life that are not recorded here. But miracle after miracle after miracle is here, and, and they're amazed about what's happening. But we have all of it. They have a few circumstances that they see. Now, they obviously apostles saw many of it, but the people in Galilee didn't see all of Jesus' miracles. We have an opportunity to hear about many of them in Scripture. You know, we see this astonishment in other places, not just here in Capernaum. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, he's going to share when he goes to Nazareth, which is his hometown, and he's basically, you're never received well. The prophet's never received well in his hometown. And many of them don't believe him because they remember him as the, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, right? 
But here in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, He went away from there, and now he's in Nazareth, right? He says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. This is probably the six, maybe six of them. And on the Sabbath, once again, he's now he's in Nazareth. He has the, the opportunity to go preach in the synagogue again. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by him, done by his hands? So this is not just a, a local event here in Capernaum. Every place he goes, he is astonishing people with how he teaches and the power that he has. We pick it up a little bit later. This is much later. Actually, this is the last week of his life. He goes into Jerusalem called the Passion Week, and he comes into town. And, and obviously, once again, you're going to see him uh, turn over tables in the temple. And this is the second time he's there doing this. And he's preaching. And it says in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The Pharisees saw that everybody believed. And they were astonished. And they didn't want to give up their power. And so they were convulsing. Right? There it is. I have what I want. I have my life. I have it the way I like it. I don't want Jesus. I don't want Jesus' teaching to interrupt my life, right? That's true today. When we come to Christ and we come and we we sit into the teaching of the word, the word is offensive to us in our sin and we don't want to heed it because we know that it's gonna take something that I don't wanna give away. My flesh wants it. Now there's a much greater life if we will just yield to it, but our flesh does not want to. It does not want to yield And so we see that here. Even in the Pharisees, they want to destroy him. And so what does that lead to? Ultimately, within the week, he is before Pilate. Obviously, he's before Herod and Pilate, and he's also crucified then on a cross. Because we will do anything to keep our power. We will do anything to not have to give in to his teaching. So what do we see here? They're in awe. They're astonished, every one of them. So your next point, we should be in awe of Jesus' power and authority. As I've been thinking about this, as I've been really trying to put myself in the text and understand what it must have been like to be there and and see Jesus do these things. And, And we're just talking about his teaching and one miracle here, let alone all of the other things he does. And I just ask myself, am I in awe of him? And I will tell you that not enough right? Not enough. We should be in awe of who Christ is. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do even on Sunday morning is to create an environment here where we can be in awe of him, right? That we're, we're, we're making sure that we're in the text. We're making sure that the songs that we sing, the prayers that we have, all of it are reminding us of who he is and pointing to him and his greatness and his authority and his power. Too much we in our world, we, we Religion or or faith has become an event and something we have fun at. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have joy at things. I'm not saying that. But we come into a place of worship. As someone told me earlier this week I was talking to, doesn't the congregation realize that in some way 
when we enter in into corporate worship, this is almost like, it's not, but like holy ground. Like that we're coming before the God of the universe and proclaiming him and, and his greatness and his authority over us and submitting to him. What an incredible thing that is, right? And I just wonder, are we really in awe of Jesus? If, if, if we were there, we would be in awe. And how much in our life, when we come to a service, when we read our Bible in our quiet time, in our private time, when we share the gospel and we see Christ in it, that you walk away in awe. Like, and I know that for some, it says, well, if I'd have saw the miracle, I'd have been in awe too, right? Well, I'll tell you what, folks, you're seeing miracles every day. Every moment, there are miracles happening. You say, what do you mean, Pastor Raleigh? Do you know that no one understands the electricity that is coming from my brain to make my heart beat? No one understands how that's possible or where that comes from. And yet you're alive. God sustains you, brings life to things. We don't understand the galaxies, but there's millions of them. Planets, how the sun burns forever and gives us heat. We don't understand anything like that. There's miracles taking place every moment of every day. I'm, I'm a big creation person. And I look at all sorts of things and I, I see things. I see, I watch a show and I, I watch this animal and it, what it does. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that just didn't happen over millions of years, right? That just, come on, does not anybody see that? Really, a porcupine? Like, how did that evolve? I mean, what was the point? Because God is infinitely wise and creative. That's why. And he just does it to say, I can do anything I want. And, and it's going to convict us in the end because he's going to say, I showed you everything. Didn't you see how crazy it was? How could that evolve? Yeah, but I just, I, because I will not let go. Because I want what I want. I want my, no, because if you're in charge, then that means I have to heed to your teaching. And I don't want to heed to your teaching. I want to live how I want to live. I want to, Whatever it may be, I want to sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I want to live this way. I want to handle money my own way. I want to, I want to have my fame. I, I don't want to do. I don't want to. I want to do all of the things on Sunday that you know that I want to do, and not what you want me to do. And I don't want to fellowship with. And I don't want to be held accountable to anyone. And, and so there's just this challenge. I think about all. I mean, just when you leave here today, just look at the, look at the, the look at the world. Look at nature. Everything that you watch. Look at the. Just incredible things that we have. I was thinking this morning, and I know I'm a simple guy. I was printing handouts. And I was thinking, what if God would have never created ink? I mean, like, think about that for a second. How our world would be completely different. Would we be handling stone chiseled tablets everywhere? I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe we would have come up with something else. But the fact that God made ink so that we could have literature and that we could print things and we could have color and we can do all this sort of stuff, that we could have the Bible without ink, right? The Gutenberg printing press, you inked all that stuff, you put it in a machine and it started making copies. There's just so many things. That you just, if you just stop and just look around and say, really, Lord, show me who you are. Show me your, your vast, majestic creation. It is everywhere. We should be in awe of Jesus' power and authority, right? All right, verse 29, 31. Just got to keep moving. 
And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Now these are guys that he's called. He met them a year ago with the, the, his baptism. Now he's called them to follow him. And immediately they're saying, hey, Jesus, come on over to our house, right? Simon and Andrew, that's going to be Simon Peter, right? With James and John, the other two, right? And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. So what do we see here? Peter had a wife, right? Most people don't even talk about that because it's, Scripture doesn't say much about it, right? He has a mother-in-law. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So what's, what I want you to see here? First of all, there's this caring about Jesus. He's, he's going to their house. He's going to break bread with them. He is their friend. He's, he's, he's their rabbi. He's their master. He's their teacher. But, but he comes to their home. He, he Possibly, we don't know historically, he may have lived there and kind of has his base of residence there. We're not sure. We don't know any other place that he kind of, kind of rested his head, so to speak, permanently, except for this, this place here in Capernaum with, with Andrew and, and Simon Peter. But then it says when he heals her, this great loving care for the mother-in-law, it says that she began to serve them. And we don't know exactly what that meant. I'm sure that when she got healed, she, um, my guess is she probably hugged Jesus. You know, we don't know all of that. It's just this one line here, right? Um, she obviously was ecstatic. She's probably aware of what Jesus has been doing. I'm sure the story and Andrew and Peter were saying, hey, he cast out a demon. You should have heard his teaching at the synagogue this morning, Mom. I mean, it was phenomenal, right? No one's ever taught like that. No scribe has ever taught like that. And, and he is humble, and he heals her. But what is her response? It's to serve. Now, I don't know what that all means, we don't know what that all entails. I mean, did she get up and make dinner? We don't know. But here's what I want you to see. Our response to Jesus' power and authority should be to serve and worship him. Right? Our response, the only right response to a, an all-powerful, all-authoritative, loving God is to serve and worship him. What, is, what does that entail? It doesn't mean that, and when I say serve, I think serving is an act of worship. And so the people that served at the car clinic, if you're a Christian and you're doing it with the right heart, you're worshiping God at that moment. You are doing things to be obedient to the call to love people and to serve people. That's an act of worship. When you come here, we're worshiping together. When you love your neighbor, when you share the gospel with your neighbor, when you obey his commands, all those are acts of worship. All those are acts of serving God. And clearly what it says here is that she began to serve. So our response to him should be one of serving and worship. All right, last three verses, 32 to 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. How would you like that be the town in Brookville where Jesus is staying, the whole town comes to you? And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. First of all, I want to point to that evening at sundown. Why was that important? Because it was the Sabbath. 
So people had went to synagogue. They were allowed to do that, but they weren't allowed to travel. They weren't allowed to carry things. There was all sorts of rules and regulations on the Sabbath that they couldn't do. And so they waited. Jesus goes back home, goes back and heals Peter's mother-in-law, probably has a meal. They're in the home, and all of a sudden, sundown hits. And everybody packs up their sick grandma and their, all their people, and they go over to Peter's house because now they can travel. They can go. They can leave their home. They can go over to Jesus' home or, you know, where Jesus is staying, and they can plead with him to heal. And what does he do? It says, at that evening, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. We don't know how many people were there. We don't know how many people... You know, Galilee had or Capernaum had, could have been, I'm sure, in the thousands of people. And they were bringing all sorts of people, and it says that he healed them. How many? I have no idea. They're not recorded. But when it says, in some of these places, when it says all, really, when you look at the, the, the translation, it literally means everyone. Not just like, oh, everyone went to the game. Well, not everyone went. Some of us stayed back. But it just is kind of a way to explain something. In this text, it really means everyone. And can you imagine if this was something that happened here, that we thought the Messiah was, was over at, you know, somebody's house, you know? I mean, wouldn't we say, let's go? I mean, absolutely, we would go. And if he's healing people, and my mom is sick, or my child is sick, or my, my child is demon-possessed, or my child has a broken leg, or has leprosy, I'm going to take my child because I want to go, and I want Jesus to heal my son. And yet I think about sometimes how quickly are do we go to Jesus when we have a problem? Yeah, I know we don't have a physical person now to go to in the flesh, but we have a, a living Messiah to go to in our prayer and, and to go to and ask and, and make our petitions known. Do we have the same type of drive that I think that these people are demonstrating here? That they couldn't wait until sundown happened because that means they could go. There's nothing that keeps us from Christ anymore. We have access to the Messiah at any moment in our prayer life, in reading the word. We have access to him. And he healed all, it says many, but really in the text it means everyone who came, God healed. It wasn't like he was selecting some and not selecting others. Everybody that came that was sick was healed. So what's the last thing we see here? Jesus' power and authority are limitless, are limitless, Think about what he's establishing here as he starts his, his, his ministry. He's the best teacher ever. He has power. He has authority over all things. He has authority over sickness. He has a power and authority over demon possessions. In fact, they praise him and acknowledge him as Lord, right? He's demonstrating it. So now as he starts his ministry, the most important thing for people to know, if I'm asking you to give your life away, if I'm asking you to trust me beyond all things and die to yourself, is that you need to know that I have all power and I have all authority. I don't know what else we could ask him to tell us. What more could we ask to trust him, right? Because he hasn't died and resurrected yet. So he can't say, well, I came back from the dead because I haven't done that yet. That's only going to be like cream on the cake, right? Later. His power and authority are limitless. So kind of what, what's the takeaway here as we wrap up? I think that Jesus' power and authority are undeniable. What do I mean by that? It's undeniable. If you study scripture, if you study history, his power and authority are undeniable. Now you can deny it. 
You can say, no, I don't believe it, and millions of people do, billions of people do, but it's undeniable. You, you, hands down, it's undeniable. And I think that's the challenge in most of us because we know the truth. Romans 1, right? We know the truth, but we decide to believe the lie. We don't want because I have to give up my control of my life in many ways and the things my flesh wants. And so I want to deny it because if I don't deny it, it's like the Pharisees. They, they wanted to kill him. Even after the guards, after the resurrection, they came and said, no, the stone was rolled away. Jesus rose from the dead. And they said, okay, don't tell anybody. <laughs> like we know, but we're denying him. We're not going to listen to this. We're not going to submit to his teaching. Who else in all of history has done what Jesus has done? Who else rose from the grave? Muhammad didn't. Buddha didn't. Joseph Smith didn't. Nobody. Forget about all the miracles for a second. Just nobody did that. One man in all of history. He claims to be the Messiah. He gives authority. He has authority. He has power. He demonstrates it. Not just once. Multiple times over a several year period. Two, three year period. And then still people come and say, no, nope, I don't believe that. Because that's think about the human heart. That's how hard our human heart can get. Even faced with the reality of something. I remember um, my granddaughter, bless her soul, she was a tiny little thing. Um, I've probably shared this before. I caught her doing something. She was in, with her mom living at the apartment they lived in when she was little. And I said, uh, Maya, I, I saw you do that. No, I didn't. I said, no, I saw you. No, I didn't. She never did tell me the truth. I debated with her for, I said, my, I saw, no, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm like, right, but, but it's just this microcosm. You know, I was frustrated that night, I will tell you. That I laugh, we laugh now about it, but you know, that's maddening, isn't it? That, that you know, I mean, I got you on camera. That's not me. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think they would say. It's maddening, but I just, it's a picture of the human heart, folks. It's a picture of my heart. It's a picture of your heart. So, so the question is, are you, you going to deny the evidence? Are you going to deny his power and his authority in your life? Matthew chapter 28, Great Commission, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? Well, what's the response to that? What's Jesus? Because of that, what can Jesus say? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Right? Go and baptize people. Do it. All authority has been given to me. I have power over all things, over sin, over death, all of it. Go and do this. Because you can trust me because I've demonstrated my authority and my power. So you can give me your life and you can do something even though you don't want to do it, even though you think it's going to be hard. You know that you can trust me because I have demonstrated my power and my authority so substantially, so perfectly. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I will never leave you. If you will just trust me, I've demonstrated who I am. Just trust me and go do what I've asked you to do. And yet, even in the church, even in my own heart some days, I don't want to do it. It's maddening to me. 
I realize this truth. I know it's true. And I just can't get my flesh to follow. And I'm so grateful for grace in those moments. You know, a few last week, the end of the message, I made a point of saying that Jesus has proclaimed the, the, the good news of the gospel and, and that we should repent and believe. And I said, look, you know, all of us have sinned and all of us must repent and all of us must believe. And so I encouraged you to do that that day. Someone came up to me a couple days later and said, you know, Raleigh, you should have had an altar call. You know, I'm not here to, to dismiss altar calls. I walked forward at 18 in one. But I don't see that in Scripture. So what, is, what, what do I mean by that then? An altar call is Jesus coming to you through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, and telling you and showing you who he is. He does that through his word. He does that through creation. He does that through all sorts of ways. He's calling you with the truth. He's revealing the truth to you. He's shown you his power. He's shown you his authority. And he says, come and believe, repent of your sin, turn away from it, and come and follow me. You do not need to come forward to have that happen in your life. You, do, you don't need to come up here and stand. That would fine. If you want to do that someday, fine, feel free. I'm not against it. I'm saying that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that the Spirit of the living God convicts people of their sin. They see who he is. They see his power and authority, and they yield right then, right now in their heart. They kneel in their heart. They, maybe they kneel physically, and they confess Jesus is Lord, just like those demons did. They confess, you are God. You are the son of the living God, Right? Now, they didn't trust him, so you have to decide whether you're going to repent and turn away from your life of sin and you want to truly trust in him. That's up to you. Coming forward doesn't automatically make that happen in your life. That's something that only God is doing in you, and you have to decide if that's what you want to do. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to deny who he is? Or are you going to yield? Now, that's a lifelong then process. After, that, after the Spirit of the living God comes and takes residence in you, puts the Holy Spirit in you as a deposit to secure you for eternity, then it's ongoing sanctification, folks. It's daily wrestling with my flesh. That's the Christian life. And it is beautiful and wonderful and hard and painful at times and mysterious at times, but that's what the Christian life is. But it begins with yielding and acknowledging his authority and power in your life. Not just in your life, in all life. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that in the end, what? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. And so you may be thinking, I'm not kneeling. I'm going to deny. That's fine. You can do that. But I'm telling you, someday you will You will. Neil, and you will confess, and you will not be able to deny. But it'll be too late for you in eternity. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to say, Lord, save me. Use me. Help me to have courage to live for you, right? And it is a glorious, joy-filled life. Hard at times, absolutely. Sacrificial at times, but no better way to live and no better joy to have than we have in Christ. Don't deny him. He is all-powerful, and he has all authority. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Uh, Lord, I, I come 
weak and sinful. Lord, I think we all come acknowledging our need of a Savior, our dependence upon you. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are gracious. That even in our hearts of rebellion, if we have been born again, Father, you continue to be gracious and patient with us and continue to sanctify us in our walk, to grow us to be more like your Son. But this morning, Lord, for those that are here that do not know you, those that have not been given a heart of flesh, Father, I pray that they will cry out to you and ask you to save them. That they will no longer deny that you are all-powerful and that you have all authority in the world and ultimately over their life. And they will surrender to you. And you will come and you will make their, your home in them and the Holy Spirit will indwell in them. And Father, that they know that they can do that at this very moment. In the quietness, stillness of their heart and their mind, they can cry out to you and they can believe and trust in you. They don't need to walk forward. They don't need to check a card. Those things are fine, but they don't need to do that. And Father, when they do that, what, that public profession is then one of baptism. Father, that's what you show us in Scripture, that when they believed, they got baptized. That was their public profession to come forward. That was their statement before the congregation. That was their statement before the body of believers. And so, Father, help us to, to learn from Scripture. Help us to, to not make it something that's not, but trust you in all that you're doing. And so, Father, I pray today your word will not return void in our hearts. For those that do not yet believe, Father, that you will draw them for the very first time. For those of us that have been believers many for many years, Father, that you will continue to cause us to confront our sin and to deny it and to turn from it and to seek you and to seek after holiness. Help us not to deny your power even in our life and your authority over every part of our life. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for their love for you. I thank you for their love for each other. I thank you for their desire to serve one another. Father, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.